thank you so much, George, for for joining me today. Uh, super excited to to chat about Val Foods and you know cellular agriculture, cultured meat in, in general, as it's sort of it's sort of sweeping the the world and, and sort of a, a food disruption mechanism. Um, so first, congrats on the raise and the Series A funding. Thank you. This is obviously going to help propel a lot of the mission and vision of Val. Uh, before we get into everything vow and everything disruption and in, in uh food and how it's sort of created um or how it will be created in the future what's what showed your journey uh before vow by almost luck i i feel like i've I, I wandered into the perfect background as a teenager um when i was going to university i was both studying a biochemistry degree full-time whilst working full-time as a chef as well oh. so i've always had this lucky mix of science and culinary arts um and then I gave the whole chef thing a go. I kind of went into the fine dining world very briefly and realized that it was pretty much poorly paid factory work at weird times of the day um, and decided that that wasn't how I wanted to spend my career. Um, so instead, I ended up going into this world of you know technical invention and how do you apply these different technical solutions to solve problems in food? Did mm-hmm. a bunch of work with the meat industry, horticulture industry, grains industries, a whole bunch of others um, before I eventually formed this view that if you want a more sustainable and socially equitable food system, system, you're not going to get there by transforming incumbent companies. You're not going to get there by persuading these large incumbent mm-hmm. organization with very entrenched ways of working to change how they, you know, even do small things like apply and purchase fertilizer. That was a big enough challenge, let alone how do you entirely reconfigure the food system? So I thought, okay, well, if that's that's the goal, then how do I how do I enable that kind of change? So I ended up starting a startup accelerator called GrowLab which is focused exclusively on food and agricultural technology companies. And over about two and a half years, I made a bunch of investments, about 17, I think, um, in every part of the supply chain. And working with those founders in the early days, you just keep coming back to this problem of meat and of animal agriculture. Um, There was one company and we were just looking at, uh, they were doing sort of optimizing fertilizer and farm monitoring. And they were onboarding these huge farms in the US. And there were these monster farms, which is like almost the size of a European country. (laughs) And all they're used for is to grow soy to sell to feedlots. And so you just keep going back to just how much effort and how much time goes into meat production. And so that was the thread that I I started to pull on that led to Vow in the end. Early on when you were funding these companies were... They're global. They were global companies, or were they mostly Asia, or there some Western countries? And and was it you said throughout the supply chain? Were were there other cellular agriculture or culture meat starting to pop up within those seventeen <laughs> organizations that you funded early on? No, not within those organizations. So that was all. They were all Australian companies, although um, a couple of them have gone international. So two are now based in the US. Um, Regrow Ag, which is based out of LA, and a company called yeah, Blackthumb, yeah. which produces software for cannabis farming. Um, I can't even remember where they're based, but they're, they're headquartered over in the US now as well, I believe. Um, but no, they're all Australian-based companies, and none are in the cellular agriculture space. They were all they were all really really good companies, um, but there was none which were really tackling a huge technical breakthrough. A lot of them were applications of fairly well understood technologies to problems within food, which is still a really really compelling sure. thing to be working on. I just uh, when I think about or when I was thinking about this, um, the question I was trying to answer is what is the problem and what is the approach that I want to dedicate the next few decades of my career to? Right. And whilst there were some great companies in that group, it was there was none which I thought I could work on this for twenty or thirty years because they were more focused on improving the traditional supply chain and traditional food system exactly that we currently have rather than exactly perfect segue to vow and what vow is trying to, <laughs> trying to do so talk about talk about the mission and vision of 
of our foods. Absolutely. So at Val, our approach is a little bit different to really anyone else in the world of cellular agriculture or cultured meat. Basically, when I was looking at the space, um, or when I was looking at, uh, so kind of working on Grow Lab and running Grow Lab, um, I started to think about, okay, well, how do you solve this resource bottleneck in meat? Mm-hmm. And the first question was, what technology do I think is going to be able to solve this? And to answer that, you have to first answer the question, why is meat so damn good? Um, and the very simple answer to that is, we don't really know. We just know that the complexity of animal tissue Um, All the different molecules that you find in combination is a really, really important part of what the experience is and why the experience is so great and so satiating. So if you just look at it through that lens, you say, okay, where do I find the complexity and complement of molecules you have in animal tissue? Plants don't have them. And so pure plant-based is never going to give you that same experience. It would just give you a simulation. Then plant-based plus precision fermentation, making one molecule at a time, like the heme Mm -hmm. in the Impossible Burger or the Whey in Perfect Day, is great if there's only one or two or three molecules, which give you that uh, the complexity of that food. But meat seems to have hundreds, so then that becomes prohibitively complex. And so you're just kind of left with cultured meat. So that's what convinced me that trying to grow meat from animal cells is the way to go. And then at the beginning of 2019, I ended up going to the U.S., to specifically look at getting a job with a cultured meat company. This was Mm. back when there were only about 15 or 20 in the world. And I was like, well, that's enough. There's no need for another one. There's no point (laughs) just starting something. Um, But I spoke to all these founders and they all had exactly the same view on how change happened, which was consumers already eat beef, chicken or pork, or in one case, tuna and one other case, salmon. Um, If we can make that, then consumers will just switch over to what we produce. And... I never really believed that was how change would happen in food. I don't don't believe, and I still don't, that you just make the same thing so it's identical and consumers will change to that. So our view and what we're working on and what we've always been working on is instead, how do we invent new types of meats that people that already love eating meat choose selfishly because they're a better uh, either experience from a sensory perspective Mm. or offer other nutrition or functionality that animals can't. So really, we're just trying to tip the playing field in the favor of the new, more sustainable thing so that people like me that choose their food selfishly are choosing the sustainable option, not because of that characteristic, but because it's better for me. Um, And so that's the underlying vision of how we think about this change in the food system. What we do about that is we make a whole bunch of different branded foods we're already talking about and getting ready to launch our first one called Morsel. Um, and that's going to be the first of many. Like Vow is ultimately a house of brands, um, gotcha. kind of like a general mills that invents a bunch of new right. types of meat. Um, and the way we do that is we have a library of all these different cells from all these different species that we basically treat like ingredients that each have their own sensory properties, nutritional properties, functional properties, economic properties that we can then combine together with others or serve it by itself. And we sell those as brands. We don't sell them as animals. So we're not going out and saying, hey, this is beef, this is chicken, this is quail. We're going out and saying, hey, this is morsel and it, this is the experience you can expect with it. This is the purpose that, it, you know, this is the reason it exists. It's not a replacement for what you already know. It's something new that's never existed before. And this is just the tip of the iceberg of a transformation in how we eat and how we think about protein. Because a lot of the other companies in the space, they're trying to do, like I I spoke to a company just doing cultured chicken, right? Their focus is mainly on chicken and then others obviously on meat, which is great because if you have uh, so many people working on that, the, the byproduct of that is that the slaughterhouses really won't exist anymore. Not it's it's going to be a very long process, right? But this is sort of 
a byproduct of this transformation is that there will be no harm in animals throughout the supply chain, which is like a massive deal, I think, to me, to others. Even though I still eat meat, I am still very conscious of the process that it takes to do so and very torn, you know? And I think a lot of people think like that. And that's why I really like yep. this space because we can still partake in the things we like, but it's more of an appreciation of the animal rather than the slaughter of an animal to, to eat food, which is amazing. Yep. And I also talk to vegetarian friends, vegan friends, and I always ask them because this still is, is a new product and a lot of people don't know about it. And I kind of explain, you know, I'll, I'll mention it to them. I was like, hey, would you eat meat, you know, if an animal was never harmed, right, in the process of it? And I think a lot of vegetarians would say yes, as I sort of explain the process to them about how it happens. They're, they're very open to the idea because they are vegetarian because of, you know, the systems and it, it's sort of a, a, a personal stance. It's not necessarily that they don't like meat or want to eat it, but they make a conscious choice against the process of which it is made out of. Right. And then there's vegans yep. a little different, right? I think they, they're a much a tougher crowd to maybe <laughs> to, to get over to, to the side of eating, even eating cultured meat. But yep. I, I do think that there, there's, that is much needed in that space where we transform transform the slaughterhouse in just a traditional way food is made, because I think that is better for not only health-wise, we can eliminate diseases essentially from food being made. And then obviously, yes. you know, the land, the regenerate, regenerative aspects of land can now be reformed because we don't have these mass, you know, farming practices. But I say that, yeah. and also there's a whole new world that could open up with things like VOW, totally new companies, totally new industries, because we don't have to harm animals. So theoretically eat lion, right? But in like a sustainable, natural way that not harming the lion, right? And and so forth and so on, which is so interesting because that just to me opens a, an entirely new world of, of interesting models. So I'll, I'll step back there and, and let you kind of come in and see if, if you have anything to add on top of that. <laughs> I think I think that like, thinking about meat as animals is a very old-fashioned way of looking at it. Um, it. I mean, certainly you could grow lion, but almost what's the point? You yeah. don't know what a lion tastes like. Lion right. cells may be great to grow, but it's not actually a helpful heuristic. It doesn't tell us anything about the food that we're about to eat. And so instead of even thinking about animals, I think the far more exciting proposition is to say, well, we have this new manufacturing technology. What are the entirely new things that we can produce? Maybe it will use lion cells, but you know, statistically speaking, speaking, it probably won't. There's about 10,000 different species of animals on this planet. Right. The odds of, you know, beef, chicken or pork or even lion or elephant or take your pick of any species that's well known being the best to grow is not right. that high. Um, it's far more likely that it's going to come from something that you haven't really heard of or don't really think about are going to be the workhorse cells, you know, um, that are going to drive a lot of these industries and be the lowest cost options. Our first product specifically is quail because we found yeah. quail cells um, or in our experience, quail cells grew better than anything else um, that we've worked on. And so we ended up building a product and building a food around that, um, which is a really, really unexpected result that we never would have found or noticed unless we had removed this expectation of, gotcha. hey, we can only go on animals that we know or we already talk about. And instead just said, let's just explore until we find something that works. And let's just right. build that capability and continuing to explore this, the animal kingdom from the cellular level. So how, I guess, how does it, okay. So how does it work now in, in sort of quail or any other species, right? How does that, how does the cell capture occur? 
um, so we start with an initial sample from an animal that can uh, mostly has been muscle, uh, so a small sample of muscle. For regulatory reasons, these have all been actually taken from dead animals in abattoirs that are already in the food system that, that we haven't taken live samples, uh, and as unfortunate as that is. And in some cases coming from eggs as well uh, for egg-laying species. And then we have a whole series of processes that we go through to separate out specific cells that we want to grow and then growing them or then identifying the cells within that population, which we're able to grow um, for a long time until we can produce enough to taste and analyze and characterize what that is as a food. Um, and that's really, yeah, that's really a I was going to say, all there is to it. It's, uh, <laughs> it's just a matter of starting off with a large mixed population of cells and selecting down to the individuals in there, which are able to grow at a commercially relevant scale and, a, and ultimately a scale which will feed millions and then billions of people. So how much can, I'm not saying not a single cell, but let's say cells from a single animal, how much, yep. how much culture meat could that produce? Um, I mean, even so the quail cell line that we're using, that's all derived from a single cell. We've probably produced... 50 kilos or maybe close, maybe more than that this year. Mm. Um, and we haven't even scratched the surface of wow. just the cells that we have banked from that single cell. So yeah, many, probably many hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of tons uh, before we get anywhere near the limits of what that cell is capable of producing. And that's just one cell from one animal. Um, so there is an extraordinary yeah. ability to magnify from what an animal can produce. I believe and I suspect in the case of that cell line, it's going to be functionally immortal and we're going to be able to produce a functionally unlimited amount of food from it. And, and that is our goal. And that's what we target in the case of really all of the animals that we work on and all the cell lines that we work on, that it's one and done. And then we can produce more or less infinitely from it. So speaking from a, let's say, a utopian perspective for a second, is that yep. <laughs> theoretically the sort of animals or the, you know, the mass sort of slaughter of animals could end our land could be regenerative we could have a revolution of land being sort of reborn again around the world because the destruction of it won't necessarily occur at the scale it is now and then third perhaps people could never die of starvation again because we'll have the ability to produce food at a really massive scale that can then feed the world in a lot of different ways than it yep. perhaps can't now. My belief, um, and this is a this is a personal belief only at the moment, it's yet to be proven out, is that some of these technologies we're seeing in biotech right now, things like cultured meat and precision fermentation mm -hmm. are going to usher in an age of abundance in food the way that internet ushered in an age of abundance mm. in information. You know, if you think back 30 or 40 years ago to what your parents had is they had a record collection with maybe 30 or 40 records if they were really into music. And that was all the music they could have. And their friends who may have been rich and really, really into music may have had something three or four or five times that size. And now everyone, pretty much regardless of your level of wealth, has access to infinite music streamed onto your right. phone all the time. And I believe the same thing is going to happen in food, or at least an approximation of that. We're going to start to see the difficulty of making the most premium exclusive food, or we associate with being premium and exclusive of things like, um, you know, experience like Wagyu and lobster and take your pick are going to be as difficult to produce as commodity foods. 
um, mm. like a chicken. And so suddenly there's not going to be this uh, huge gulf in the price between those things. Right. And so then there isn't going to be a real separation or division or exclusivity on whether you're eating something which is a crustacean or something which is a land animal uh, or a bird, because they're all able to be made in roughly the same way. Um, the finest cheeses in the world, the finest wines in the world will be able to be built out kind of molecule by molecule. And the cost of doing that for anything is going to be roughly the same. Um, and so it's going to create this uh, abundance in food, uh, both, and, you know, I sincerely hope, reducing food insecurity all around the world, um, but also changing our relationship and our culture around food, because it's not going to have that huge variance in pricing. Let's real quick go down maybe not the opposite path, but anytime innovation happens in any space, there's sectors of society or there's traditional businesses that are sort of left behind, right? So let's just say, you know, a farmer, right? Yep. It, how will they be affected by this? And it, it, how can they be affected in a negative way by this? I'm just, I'm trying to sense that, it, you know, as, as this moves forward, who's going to be left behind or how can we prevent maybe people who have, this is their livelihood, right? And and that disruption yeah. happen is very painful. So like, is there a way where that could be sort of prevented? Uh, so I've, I've asked this question. I've thought about this a lot. And one of the um, one of the really formative moments that built my relationship with the agriculture sector was extremely early on when we we're on a farm, maybe four hours south of where we live in Sydney, Australia, and collecting a biopsy from a kangaroo that uh, was mm -hmm. being collected on that farm that day. And we're sitting there having tea with this really very, very sweet farming family that the mother of the family was an ethical Buddhist and was a staunch vegan that ran a beef farm, which is a really, really interesting philosophical conversation. Yeah. And I, we asked about, okay, well, we're trying to make meat and how do you feel about that? And they went, oh, we're farmers. Farmers adapt. Farmers have always uh, have always adapted mm -hmm. to changing markets, changing preferences. And if you look at the data, that's absolutely true. It, uh, the introduction of cars at the beginning of the last century completely changed the demand for horses for transport. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the production of something like oats in the US, it has fallen precipitously um, or it fell precipitously for many, many decades after that. It went from either the largest or one of the largest crops um, to a crop that was essentially uh, a niche. And the same thing is going to happen with some of the things that are farmed now. Farms are very adaptive. Farmers are very adaptive. They produce what the market demands. And there will be a demand for a lot of farmed goods. And certainly things like vegetables. We require sugar feedstock, which are going to be coming from green plants growing in fields as well. And the farmers that are producing those will adapt, as they always have, to changing market conditions and produce yep. less of what doesn't make money and more of what does. But in the same way that horses still kick around for leisure, you know, you see them in places like the big parks in any city, like uh, Central Park yeah. in New York always has those weird horse and carriage things. You see them in horse racing and you see very wealthy people choosing to ride horses for that sense of tradition and prestige that comes with a really, really costly and exclusive pursuit like that mm -hmm. because it doesn't make sense. It's not the most efficient, um, but it has this history and this heritage, which is attractive. I suspect farms that produce high quality, sustainable and ethical meat are still going to exist 50 or 100 years from now. 
Um, be like but a the vast majority item. of exactly, exactly, yeah. and that's but yeah. part of that is going to be how you treat the animals. Is if you look at right. horses for leisure, those animals are treated extremely well, mm-hmm. um, in a way that horses for transport were not treated a hundred and you know, hundred and twenty years right. ago. They were treated extremely poorly, and I think we'll see a similar thing. That you know, the idea of hand massage, wagyu beef, um, the idea of these yeah. sort of exclusive experiences are still going to exist in a hundred years, but they're just not going to be mainstream. They're going to be a way for a you know, people that hark back to the era that we're in now to show that they're able to afford that and they're able to have those experiences. I love that idea because I've always looked at it where, you know, meat should be a luxury rather than a commodity. And that's where I think absolutely is is the commoditization of of chicken, of beef, of all this. And if, if we can turn that on its head where that becomes, hey, once a month, I only eat this, right? Or once a year, you really have that like... Yep. That becomes the Michelin star meal, right? Is is sort of that that way of of, of looking at eating that you know from a from an artisan farm, right, or something, so to speak, like that. For 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 people who let's say go back to the farmers who have land that grow crops, and you mentioned a little bit about monocrops earlier. Do you think that there will be a renaissance yes. of these lands turning to multi-crop, right? Because now they can their land theoretically, let's say it's it's healthier. The market wants different things from them. Yep. They can now start to grow their land naturally to produce multi-crops rather than just, you know, fertilizing and making the land, you know, monocrop, which in the long run essentially destroys, you know, the ecosystem and the dirt below it. I certainly, I, I certainly hope so. Um, part of the reason, or another part of the reason why I'm quite bearish on plant-based meat is it's so reliant on those industrial monocropping systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that's something we necessarily want to take to the future with us. And so my hope is as markets change, there will be an increasingly strong incentive um, to diversify those farms and to produce multiple smaller niche crops. I have a friend of mine who lives up um, uh, up north in Australia, and he's been working on something that's called a food forest where it's a nat- it's a tropical he lives in the tropics and he's planting this almost semi-natural forest which has all of these edible plants at kind of ground cover level mid-story and canopy level um and so it's this almost like cr- crafting a forest that's all edible um and mm. it has this wonderful effect where these plants support one another and so you end up with far more productivity that comes out of one of these food forests than you would planting all of these things separately and so I hope, especially as we end up with increasingly advanced automation, that mixed cropping as opposed to monocropping operated with fairly simple mechanics is going to become not only a viable alternative, but a far more cost-effective way of producing animal, sorry, producing food than um, this uh, current monocropping system that we use. Speaking of cost, it's very expensive to go down the path that you know, culture meat needs, I guess, to get sort of off the ground, so to speak. You guys have just raised yep. <laughs> over a little bit over 50 million. And, and yep. so what do you take that money and do? Is that specifically manufacturing, you know, getting the foundations of multiple facilities around the world? I guess what is, when you get that injection of capital, what is that, what are sort of the, the key points that that go into? So so when I think about Val specifically, so I'll answer your question in a roundabout way. I'll tell you kind of some of the context about us and therefore how we're allocating this capital. When I think about us specifically, our whole strategy is to 
introduce things that don't exist, that don't have a point of comparison, starting at the very high end of the market and then keeping prices as high as possible for as long as possible. Mm -hmm. And the only reason for that is to generate as much operating cash flow as possible for us to reinvest in the two areas that... Uh, you know, the two areas that give us the best opportunity to learn and ultimately build a moat to continue to have that margin to be able to grow the company to the point of being the largest food company on the planet. And those two areas are the cycle of technical product development. So going from something that's on a lab bench into a factory, into market, and learning what experiences consumers want, and then building the branding and storytelling capability to be able to introduce these products to consumers, mm. build a following for many different products and many different brands in our house of brands, and then scale those up over time. And so when it comes to deploying this capital, there's really three aims. The first one is build our first commercial product line with Morsel, um, mm -hmm. which is a, a very important one. Um, and that requires us to build out factory capacity like we already have with Factory One, which is operating now, get regulatory approval, have the right partnerships to come to market in places like Singapore and Australia and the US as we get approval in each of those markets. The second one is investing in increased scale and cost reduction. So we've already started work on factory two, which is going to be about 30 to 50 times the scale of factory one. So it's a huge, mm. huge increase in the scale that we're going to be operating at. And uh, with that increased scale, quite rapidly comes big drops in cost, both on the supply chain side, because we're buying more of the inputs, which used to be expensive and it gets very cheap. And also on the um, labor and energy side, all of the processes become more efficient at larger scales. Um, and so building up that scale, reducing our costs and lots of R&D to improve the process reliability and um, you know, all the things that drive that cost down. And then the third one is continuing to build out that platform to take in any cell to make ultimately any food you can dream up, any combination mm. of flavor, nutrition, texture, functional properties. And that requires a lot of continued investment in our software and data platform that we call Ranger into our automation hardware. And so, in fact, just today we're installing um, by far our most sophisticated automated workflow yet, which was very exciting, um, as well as into some of the software development and data science that will back that up uh, and allow all of that to work faster so that we can literally just dream up any any experience we want <laughs> and be able to deliver on it technically. That's amazing. Well, that also gives you the ability, I mean, if you want, right, I guess it, it depends on if you want to do sort of the go down strictly B2C. I believe General Mills is just B2C. I don't think they, I don't know if they that's do right. sort of, yeah. So, yeah. but they're essentially all. And so that, that's the main focus, right? Not maybe, you know, having founders come to you and you almost be, you can be like a, a white, not a white label solution for them, but they can, you have the ability to incubate creators, I guess, so to speak. Um, they, if somebody has an idea and comes in, yeah. uh, but is it, is it strictly going to be for brand creation? Uh, we're going to build our own brands exclusively. Um, yep. And this has been something which we've looked at both sides of extensively over the last two years. And what we've ended up landing on is building brands is where the value comes in the long term. Yeah. And the reason for that is I just don't believe there's going to be a technological advantage for very long. As cultured mm -hmm. meat shifts from something right now, which is very, very sci-fi um, and very <laughs> on the you know, limits of what we can conceive as being possible, over the next couple of years, as products come to market, it's going to become commonplace. And suddenly there's going to be 10 companies that can do what you're talking about, where you do just go up and you're buying yep. either capacity or white-labeled products. When I think about that, you know, when I think about this looking through the lens of history is something like 
Cheerios or even some of the puff cereal, those cereals had a technical advantage when they launched and they haven't had a technical advantage in you know seven, eight decades, but we still know what a Cheerio is yep. because they invested that effort. They invested you know the capital in building that brand and that brand is recognizable nearly a century on. Yep. And so that's the purpose for us going B2C. That's the purpose for us building this presence and these products and these brands um, is ultimately that becomes our enduring advantage and uh, our legacy in the food system. We get to create and own this new category that we're building of these branded meats. And so more so being the first one, I guess, how far are we away from, I guess it's, I guess it's launching in, I guess a restaurant or you're going to have sort of this, is it like a, a pop-ups thing or are you just going to allow certain chefs and certain restaurants to use it within their menu? Talk a little bit about, I guess, the introduction of Morsel to the world and the different ways that's going to happen. So we're working through this for Singapore at the moment. And right now we're planning on a pop-up with multiple chefs with very different cuisine styles. Um, mm-hmm. And the simple reason for that is to show off the versatility um, and very specifically try to target chefs that are influential in their cuisine. That said, um, Australia and the US launch may end up looking quite different. All I can say for certain is first up, the experience will be in food service to make sure that every mouthful of morsel that people are having is cooked perfectly and gives a really, really wonderful food experience. That's all that I can say with confidence. Beyond that, we have a lot to learn with our Singapore launch and we'll then apply those learnings in places like Australia and the US to make sure that every single person that tries morsel is able to fall in love with it and is able to share that story and, and feel like they're the pioneer in the food system that they really are. We mentioned Singapore a couple of times and maybe some regulatory hurdles globally around the world. I guess, where are we at globally when you talk to whether it's US regulation versus European versus, I guess, Singapore is sort of the first to, for lack of a better term, legalize the ability to sell to to consumers in a, in a way? I'm not sure how to, how to depict it, but where are we at regulatory globally? And I guess, what are some of the hurdles that the industry faces at that level? So it's uh, it's funny. I, I've been to so many conferences with cultured meat founders blaming regulators for them not being on market. Um, and about <laughs> probably only like six or eight months ago, I was at a conference and I met this key person at the Australian food regulator. And someone asked him in front of me in a conversation of like, oh, what are you doing that's preventing you know George and Val coming to market? And he just looks at me and he goes, nothing. I'm not doing anything. I'm waiting on him to give me some data so we can respond yeah, to it. Yeah, exactly. Um, right, right, I think that's right. the reality is the regulators are the regulators are ready and they have been ready for a long time. They spent a lot of time thinking about what are the risks in cultured meat and how sure, do we control sure. them? And they're really just waiting on us to give them data. So Singapore, Australia, and the US are all highly engaged consultative regulators that are very fast moving, but there are also um, very engaged regulators in countries like Israel and the UK. Now they're separated from the EU and the Middle East and Japan and Korea are all actively engaged and prepared to regulate cultured meat for consumption. They just need me to give them data. <laughs> and so yeah, sure. um, it's uh, there really aren't any blockers. It's been it's been quite I uh, uh, suppose pleasantly surprising how forward thinking and engaged the regulators have been long before companies are ready to commercialize. And the data that they want is the interaction it has with the human body or the process in which it is made. Do they want to see what it's actually a, the self It's a bit of both. Yeah. So 
Essentially, what the regulators are looking for is they're looking for us to make a risk assessment on where are the risks in this product, the same way they are with any food product um, that doesn't have an existing established food standard. And then they're looking at that risk assessment and all of the processes we use to control it as a way of determining, have we identified a sufficient range of risks and do we have sufficiently controlled processes to prevent those risks manifesting? And that that's really, um, in the simplest terms, what they're looking for for from us. Um, Actually putting that together is a fairly complex effort, Um, but conceptually they're not looking for, they're not looking for anything groundbreaking. They're looking for an understanding of how we view these products. And because they're cells from animals and, you know, very similar end products, if you grow quail cells, you end up with a very, very similar end product to quail. They're trying to understand, is it similar enough to view it in the same risk category as that. Right. And then if so, what are the new risks posed by your production process and how do you manage those? Um, So it's been a very interesting back and forth, but all of the regulators we're working with actively have been very, very engaged and very helpful. What are some of the risks? I guess, look, right now we could say everything's amazing and beautiful, right? But like it would, something will happen or things like, I guess, what are the risks as we stand yeah, right so now? The, so the ones that we focus on, so we're growing these cells in a nutritional media. And one risk is, is there anything dangerous in that nutritional media? And so we make some extremely conservative assumptions that 100% of everything we put in will end up in the final product. Um, and so then the question, is there anything which if the cells concentrate it could present a risk to you or I if we're reading that? product every single day. So that's mm-hmm, one That's mm-hmm. one risk. It's a fairly straightforward one to control for. Um, you don't have to worry about things like glucose, um, but there are some vitamins which are present in our growth media that if they were accumulated, um, they could be on the high end of what is considered safe consumption. And so we then have to demonstrate and validate that those aren't being accumulated uh, and aren't going to cause a hazard. Another one is just like, are the cells changing? Are they staying mm-hmm. the same or are they changing? Are they becoming allergenic? Could they you know, trigger a shellfish allergy if you grow them for too long? Um, could they, does their metabolism change? Do they produce something which could be harmful? And so those are all things that we both have to test for ahead of production and then also have ways of monitoring and validating that in production. I'm trying to think of any other major ones. Allergies are definitely one that food yeah, regulators are concerned yeah, I was about. Yeah, thinking about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, that and so that what they're... What they're interested in is uh, actually allergies and in, in the case of uh, fish and shellfish, marine toxins as well. Are there any things that are not normally found in the tissue, but could be found because of the production method? Um, and so there's multiple ways that we test for allergenicity and then multiple ways that we monitor for that um, in ongoing production as well. So there's a, there's a pretty clear set of things which could cause harm. Uh, and we have very, very clear ways of monitoring, measuring, and validating those things in production to ensure that they don't cause harm. We mentioned allergies. And let's, let's just say somebody has a seafood allergy. I guess it is the process of making cultured seafood or, or cellular agriculture. Is it possible to t- to sort of to sort of see what causes allergy within seafood and then in the process of maturing those cells take for lack of a unscientific word take those molecules out to where a person that is allergic to seafood could actually eat cultured seafood because through the process it can take out these these harmful i guess things that affect their body i guess that I know, I'm trying to get there, but hopefully maybe you understand what I'm asking. <laughs> it's a great question. Um, I haven't dug into this. As I understand it, the most allergens are protein-based. 
Um, so mm, in the gotcha. same way that we can turn on and off the production of some proteins um, by changing the environment of cells, um, we could likely do the same with allergens. That said, the level of validation and mm-hmm. quality for a food regulator to be satisfied that was an allergen-free product would be extremely high. Sure, sure. Um, and so I suspect we'd probably, if we were able to do it, um, it probably would take some years until that could land on the label um, just because of the very high consequence of that risk. Yeah. Um, if it's something which could cause anaphylaxis, you want to be damn sure you're turning it off sure. 100% of the time or eliminating it 100% of the time. Final question would be, you know, just as you go down this journey, like you said early on, you know, what do you want to spend the next couple of decades of your life working on, right? Which is yep. obviously a chunk of, of, of anyone's life, right? But let's say over the next, you know, three to five years, what are some of the successes that you want to see occur specifically for Val? I think, I mean, the, the, there's some very simple ones. One is we have food out there, which people are eating and enjoying. Another is that we're starting to see these green shoots of a cultural movement. Um, mm-hmm. Thinking about meat as something new and different. That's something personally I'm very excited about and very motivated to work toward. Um, another category for us is just seeing manufacturing up and running across a few different continents. Is factory one and two for us are in Australia. I hope factory three will be somewhere like Singapore. Factory four will be in the US. Factory five will be in the Middle East or Europe. And we'll start mm-hmm. to see this global network of manufacturing serving customers all over the world. Um, and of course, the regulation to go with that. So if we're feeding people all over the world, we're seeing these green shoots of a cultural movement towards thinking about meat as things that are different to animals, then I think it would have been a very, very successful few years for us. Amazing, my man. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time, you know, sit down and talking about it's it's a really interesting sector for for everybody involved. And I think we're all going to be affected by it one way or another in the next you know, decade and certainly couple of decades. I think it's, it is the evolution of, of food, much like electric cars seem to be the next evolution of, <laughs> of cars. It, it feels exactly. like the digital transformation of food, right? Going from sort of an analog system to a digital system is just like going to happen. And, you know, we'll be some bumps along the way, but it, it feels like on a service level, it should be a net positive for, for the human species and for our climate. And I think also for health potentially um, around the exactly. world. So, So best of luck to you and the team going forward, my man. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you so much. Really great to speak to you, Grant. 